some of you may have come across the phrase um, soft power. Um, in international relations, of course, soft power is the ability for one nation to influence another through credibility, uh, role modeling, positive role modeling, and forging cooperative relationships. Um, because of our COVID response, apparently, New Zealand's soft power world ranking, they have world rankings for everything these days, there's one for, for soft power, has risen significantly uh, according to a new report that has come out just a few weeks ago. Uh, it took me a while to work out that soft power was also important when raising teenagers. Hard power stops working when your children are in their pre-teens, uh, well, at least mine did. I clearly remember the day our youngest son uh, told us that he didn't want to come to church anymore, thank you. Uh, and for a week or two, I was very confused because the old methods did not work anymore. Um, but I realised that coercion would probably do more harm than good, and so he stopped coming to church with us. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Uh, I'll tell you the end of the story over coffee at the end. <laughs> oh! oh. Uh, our passage from John chapter 3 um, has to do with this idea of soft power rather than coercion. Um, in particular, I'm talking about John 3.16, the most well-known uh, verse in the Bible probably. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, but it's well-known, but there are hidden depths in this single verse. So we want to explore this this morning. But first, some background. The reading begins, of course, in verse 14 with a rather cryptic refer reference to the snake that Moses lifted up. This was the bronze snake that Moses put on a pole for the people to look at when the Israelites were in the wilderness afflicted by snake bites. And again, there's some further background there, which I won't go into. But the verse is saying that in the same way that the Israelites looked trustingly at the bronze snake that was lifted up and were healed... So whoever looks trustingly to Jesus Christ up on the cross will also receive healing and indeed eternal life. So there's a process here, and that is eternal life is grounded upon the lifting up of Jesus Christ on the cross, according to this short passage. And in John 3.16, we're told that the lifting up of Jesus Christ is in turn grounded upon the love of God who sent Jesus into the world. So in summary, God sent his son into the world who was lifted up on the cross, and the cross is now the means by which we can possess eternal life. And this process actually has a name because it's so important. The Missio Dei, the mission of God. God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So think about what it means for God to so love the world that he gave his only son. The message translation captures the nuance quite well, where it says, this is how much God loved the world. He gave his son his one and only son. The construction of the Greek emphasizes the intensity of God's love. Furthermore, the phrase, his one and only son, underscores how uniquely precious is this gift. The father's gift of the son is therefore the greatest of all gifts, a unique gift, the best possible gift, 
That is how much God loved the world. We instinctively know, don't we, that gifts that cost the most, generally speaking, are valued the most. And of course, we don't necessarily measure cost in purely monetary terms. Cost can be measured in other ways. Pip and I once made a present for one of our sons who was going through a, a bad time. This is probably 12 or 15 years ago now. And it was an album, a photograph album, one of those fancy ones where you cut and paste all sorts of stuff and you put messages in it. We spent hours making that album. We couldn't think of any way, any other way to reach out to our son who was in a really dark, dark place. So we thought, we'll make him an album. It was very much a one-off. And it meant so much to him. And who knows, it could have been the turning around of his life because it did turn around in the end. But we wanted to express our love for him with the best present we could give. So it wasn't a quick card, as important as those are at times, or a check, or something from Bunnings. It was a precious, unique gift of ourselves to our son. Now that is a pale illustration of the unique gift of God's own son to us. The most precious gift of all. Now this is all about the subject of the love initially, that is the lover. But think now about the object of God's love, the beloved. The object of God's love, according to John 3.16, is what? The world. For God so loved the world. Now, there's an immediate paradox here because by far the most common usage of the Greek word cosmos, which is here translated world in John's gospel, is the world as it organizes itself in opposition to God. The world in rebellion against God. Generally speaking, that's what the word cosmos means in John's gospel and indeed the epistles of John as well. You see, a much more typical use of the word world is, is, is found, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. John says there, do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. So do you see the paradox? In spite of the wickedness of the world, God continues to love the world. Now, when you read John 3.16, you may be tempted to think that the love of God for the world is amazing because of the bigness of the world. After all, the world encompasses everything. But this is not the thrust of the passage. It's not the bigness of the world that makes God's love so amazing but rather it's the badness of the world. You see, in spite of human rebellion against God, in spite of the evil structures and systems that perpetrate oppression, in spite of despots and empires who accumulate wealth and power and privilege for a select few, God continues to love the world with profound intensity and strength. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only son. Now, forget the word world for just a moment and realize that the world is actually made up 
of individual people, many of whom mock or ignore or even revile God. But in spite of all this, God continues to love people, all the people of the world. You see, this verse teaches that God's love, um, that God loves, sorry, not because there is anything particularly lovely or worthy or admirable about humankind that would somehow warrant or deserve God's love. No, in spite of our unloveliness, in spite of our rebellion, the holy God who made all things loves you with profound intensity and strength. For God so loved the world, put your name there, for God so loved that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, put your name there, should not perish but have eternal life. So this morning we've looked at the nature of God's love, its intensity and strength toward all the people of the world in spite of their rebellion. And I've also introduced the idea that this is the greatest example of soft power that you could ever imagine. Because God's love is non-coercive. God's love is freely given, without conditions at all. In the fullness of time, God sent his son to engage with us, to woo us, to persuade us, to encourage us, and coax us into believing in his son, Jesus Christ into loving and serving him and into experiencing eternal life. And this plan of non-coercion or soft power is evident throughout the Gospels. Think first of Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night because he feared for his reputation. Jesus engaged with him, argued with him, and sought to persuade him and Nicodemus experienced a slow transformation. And even though he was still confused on that night, he reappears in John chapter 19, verse 39, to help care for the crucified body of Jesus. He has emerged from the darkness, John chapter 3, into light over the course of Jesus' ministry, and it was because of Jesus' non-coercive love. Think also of the Samaritan woman in the very next chapter, John chapter 4, whose long conversation with Jesus leads to her tentative belief. And it was because of Jesus' non-coercive love. In fact, in that very example, Jesus puts himself in debt to her by asking for a drink of water. That is a good example of God's love who in Jesus comes from beneath, in humility, making himself a servant to non-coercively love the people of the world. Sometimes we think a big stick is the answer to the world's problems. I know lots of politicians act like that, talk like that. A big stick, that's what we need. And I acknowledge that the debate about the just war is a complex one. But in this one verse this morning, we find a beautiful summary of the gospel, and it's not what we would have dreamt up ourselves. We find that the whole focus of Christianity is the love of God, whom we find expressed perfectly 
in Jesus Christ, especially his death on the cross. But the love of God is of a particular kind. It is strong, it is deep, and it is non-coercive. I think, you know, at our best, we know these principles that have been woven into the fabric of the world. Um, think of the Me Too movement. Uh, think of the Black Lives Matter movement. They're based on the conviction that people matter. Everyone is equal, and everyone needs space in which to flourish. People need freedom to be. But these values are, of course, unprovable assumptions. And in many cultures of the world, they simply don't exist. And at many times in human history, they have been simply brushed aside. However, Christians believe they are grounded in the unconditional love of God. We believe that people matter because God loves us and are highly valued by him. For God so loved the world. We believe that everyone is equal because God's love is unconditional and not dependent on the perceived value of a particular person. For God so loved the world. And we believe that freedom is important because God's love is non-coercive and we flourish best when we can make real decisions for ourselves. For God so loved the world. So celebrate God's love this morning. If we do nothing else, we ought to celebrate God's love at life streams because worship is not about God wanting to have a fan club. Those superficial atheists who don't think deeply enough characterize worship in that way. No, worship is the grateful outpouring of human hearts who have discovered this amazing love, have been transformed by it, and want to live their lives in the light of it. If you want to experience more of the strong, deep love of God this morning, I invite you to come forward and receive communion later in the service. And as you do so, say, thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for all you have done for me. I am truly grateful. Amen. We now...